Welcome to DJ Grandpa's Crib, the podcast of Kickstarter, the crowdfunding website. Each week, I interview real people with honest dreams. Today is Monday, May 13th, 2013. And on this day in history, in 1607, Jamestown was founded. It was the first permanent English settlement in North America. Now that's cool. Okay, 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 quit it, quit it. All right, let's, let's do this right. Ready? From the top. Hello, I'm Michael J. Sullivan. You might know me from my fantasy series, Rire Revelations. But today I want to talk to you about my new novel, Hollow World. Ten times minimum funding for you. Wow. Yeah, oops. <laughs> oops. I'm self-publishing Hollow World because I think it makes sense to maintain a balance between traditional and self-publishing as both provide authors with significant benefits. I see that you had in the trailer about, you know, you picked out your publisher and you had your artist picked out. You can put a book out professionally with that small amount as far as minimum funding? I think it's... Uh... Yeah, about $1,500 or a little bit less than that for the art and uh, for the structural editing. 3000 yeah, I'm, I'm pushing a little bit. But uh, yeah, you can do that. It's not that hard. I did invite you on the show to say congratulations on the success of your Kickstarter. Oh, thank you. Why don't you tell me about this new book, Hollow World? Okay, well, Hollow World is uh, kind of a break for me because it's a science fiction story. It's a story about a fella who uh, is a Detroit auto worker who's about 58 years old now. And I mean, he didn't live really bad life, but he lived a life that not a lot of people but think maybe he didn't do so well. And other people might think he did do all right. I mean, he had he got married and he had a kid and so on and so forth. But he never did all the dreams that he wanted to. As the book opens, you find out that he's uh, he's terminally ill and he's been messing around with a little project that he has in the garage because he was planning on going to MIT, but he was never able to... Uh, his his father died and he ended up having to take over for the family and become a provider. And that's how I ended up becoming a factory worker. But he kept learning about it over his years. So one of the things he finds is there's a theoretical uh, paper on the possibility of being able to move forward through time. You can't go back, but you can jump forward by creating a gravity well. So he actually builds a device in his garage. Right. And with that, he jumps ahead. But he has no real control of where he's going or how far. And he ends up going quite a ways in the future. But the thing is, I was fascinated by the idea that people have a negative view of the future, whereas in the past, oh, before true. World War I, everyone had a very positive. They thought that you know technology was going to save everything and make the world a better place. But now... They did? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, it was with electricity came out and the telephone came out and all these things were wonderful and they thought it was going to solve all the problems of the world. But then the, the big war hit and they saw that technology was bad. And so they had this kind of cascading effect. So I was actually playing with the idea of if I could write a book in which it's going to be rather polarizing that some people, depending on how you view the world, will look at the future that I've created and say, this is an awful, horrible nightmare. And other people should read it and say, this is where I want to live. This is fantastic. And it was really kind of hard to do that. But the idea was that if we take our present prejudices and the things that we value and you don't find them in the future – but let's say you found good things like there's no war or there's no famine, there's, you know, there's no disease. Those would be wonderful. But how do you get those things? How do you get rid of racism? How do you get rid of the, of, uh, you know, lack of war and things of that nature? What would you have to trade to get that? And would the things you would have to trade to get those things be worth losing? And the jury is still out because I only had a few people actually read it. <laughs> yeah. But it was kind of an interesting thing to play with. Okay. Sounds divisive, but apparently not on Kickstarter. It's a unifying factor. Yeah, apparently I'm guessing that it, my reputation precedes me with some of these people because uh, none of them have read it, but apparently they, they're willing to back it. <laughs> Can I assume that the Kickstarter community has been quite nice to you? Yes, the Kickstarter community has been wonderful to me. That's one of the reasons that I wanted to do the Kickstarter was the fact that people who read my books know about me, but a large percentage of the people who backed me were from Kickstarter who don't know who I am. And I'm not even sure why they're backing me. 
Maybe they just like my name. I'm not sure. Or the video I made, which it was terrible. Yeah, that was a rough trailer, man. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I usually kiss up to people on this show about the trailer. Oh, what beautiful trailer. That was an awkward trailer, man. I'm not an actor. <laughs> and yet, despite that, I mean, maybe they really like bad filming. I don't know. <laughs> but despite that, yeah, it's 10 times the, the funding. So That's the rudest thing that I'm going to say to you during this interview. So it's it's all up from here. <laughs> okay. What do you have for like authors that are in your league? What are you going to go back and tell them like when you're at the bar or you're at some sort of social and they're like, hey, I heard you did your last book on Kickstarter. What are you going to say to them? I actually know more self-published authors who are able to live off of their writing than I do traditional authors. Oh. One of the reasons is, is that most books don't earn out. So whatever you get for your advance is all you're going to be getting. And that's kind of a shame. And so people would be happy to go to a traditional publisher and get a $5,000 or $7,000 advance. And I'm can say, well, look right here, I've, I've already made the advance because essentially a Kickstarter is the equivalent of an advance from a publisher, except I'm not getting it from the publisher. I'm getting it directly from the readers. Yes. And that money isn't going into my pocket. Well, some of it's going to be doing that because it's not completely covered, but it's going to give me the financing to make a very professional book, which again, other writers and self-published writers as well, they feel that they don't have the funds. They always say, well, I don't have the money to hire an artist. I don't have the money to hire a structural right. editor. And obviously, it's possible to do that. Now, granted, I have already sort of a tribe. I have some fans who are going to be helping me out here. But like I said, a lot of my backers are directly from Kickstarter. They're not even people who know me that well. They just found me on Kickstarter. Then maybe they looked me up and decided to back me. I didn't even know you. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. So not only does going through Kickstarter make it possible to finance a good book and to get that advance that you would want to get from a traditional publisher, but at the same time, you know, it gives you exposure to a whole new group of people who will hopefully become readers. I know. And when you come back or if and when you come back, you have that whole backer foundation to improve on. And that's the same thing that the gamers and other people are doing on the platform. So, I mean, I, I just want to say congratulations, man. Whatever you did in the first few seconds of that video somehow worked, man. It must have been the <laughs> grin or something. Um, <laughs> I don't know what it was. It's the fact that I put the outtakes up first. <laughs> yeah, that was it. I was like, I tried to be nice to you. I just couldn't do it, man. <laughs> I tried to be nice to you. Maybe it's like that old uh, infomercial for the Ginsu knives. You know, it was a really bad commercial, but everyone bought it. I don't know. <laughs> oh, yeah, and the pocket fisherman and all exactly. of that. Yeah, the Pope Peel guy. Yeah. Maybe you're the, the Pope Peel of, uh, of the Kickstarter community. You have a career ahead of yourself. Rebranding. I'm so bad, I'm good, right? You're right. <laughs> Yeah, I thought you were like in a stagecoach sort of kind in there because the way you were positioned. Anyway, I can't be any meaner to you, man. But <laughs> thanks for letting me be myself and mean to you like DJ Grandpa, you know, is sometimes. And really, dude, I wish you the best. And, and please come back for your next book. Don't come back with the same book now. Oh, no, no. <laughs> but because that's a kiss of death. But yeah, come but back with another book. Hopefully there'll be a book, too, maybe, if everyone likes this one well enough. Welcome back to the show. We like games. We're always games. Everybody plays games. But today, I'm speaking with Ray Williams. He has a Kickstarter going on right now. The name of the game is called Alchemist Academy, and the name of his company is called Mungie Studios. He's out of Brisbane, Australia. Ray, welcome to the show. Hey, going, DJ Grandpa. Is this your first game? That you're putting out, period? This is my first game. I started working on it just a little over a year ago. And during that time, we've just basically been developing the game rules and getting some art together. Has this been a dream of yours to start a gaming company? About a year ago, I had the idea for 
this game and I just couldn't let go of it. Once the idea came to me, it was just stuck in my head and, you know, I'd, I'd forget about it and leave it for a while, but then it just, it was just something that kept persistently coming up. And so then after a while, I just thought, okay, let's see how far I can get with this thing. And I managed to get it all the way through to a, a working prototype and now it's up on Kickstarter ready to go live. I just, yeah, hoping to get the back in to get a first publication run done. I see that you've been on a couple podcasts and a couple bloggers have played this game. What has been the response? Overall, it's been pretty good. Um, I've sort of keep an eye on some of the big board gaming websites. Um, there's Board Game Geek. Um, I saw just recently someone's been playing it with it. I've let out a print and play version of it of it so people can play test it um, and I've seen that people have started doing that they've started posting pictures of them playing with their kids which is, is great because you know a gaming's not just you know for kids in a thing it's for like a whole family to get on board so it's been quite positively received from most uh, podcasts that have, have had it and play tested it which is really good well that was a good idea to put out a play and test version that you could print out yourself I never thought about that but that's kind of cool so it's just a, a lighter version, like it doesn't include everything that the full game will include, but there's enough there that people can play it. Like um, the full game will be two to six players, where the print and play is only like two to three players, but there's enough there of the cards to get a good feel of the game and see how the rules all work. And then, you know, we believe that the rules in the game are strong enough that people will play it, they'll love it, and then they'll want to put some money towards it. Okay, now we've been talking about the game, talking about the game. Why don't you tell me what the game actually is, Alchemist Academy? Alchemist Academy is a card game for two to six players, and all the players take on the roles of magically gifted students who attend a school called Egglestein Hall. And the theme behind it is that you and the other fellow classmates have been slacking off a little bit, so your grades have been dropping. And so, obviously, being a magical school, the best way to raise your grades up so you can get a pass is by casting sort of spells. So there are two decks of cards, one deck which holds uh, spells and another deck which holds component cards. And you draw from these two decks each round, um, you know, you might choose to pick up a spell one time or the next time you might choose to pick up two components and with the components each spell requires a certain combination of components to cast and once you've got the correct components you can say I'm casting this spell and it might be a doppelganger which allows you to have two turns or there's a card called weak source which makes it harder for other people to score points so you cast them you say who you're casting it on you gain points for that spell and it will have some sort of effect either on yourself or on the other players, they have a chance then, if they can, to deflect it or, or stop the spell from affecting them. But if they can't, then they take whatever effect is from the spell. And the, the first person to hit 30 points gets their passing grade and wins the game. What would you like to say to the people who back this game so far? Well, I think we're up to about 115 backers so far. And I'd really like to thank them. Um, to put their faith in this game it is a good game and you know you can see a lot of the artwork that we've got done so far and we're hoping to obviously build upon that i really want to take it the full distance there's we've got a lot of cool ideas still to come and they're helping making this dream possible so thanks so you're not giving up you're really sticking to this gaming thing i mean it's for you i was surprised at first i thought i might just make the one and it might be something fun for for me and the family but uh now I started collecting a little booklet that started to got all the game ideas of games that I'd like to produce. And so, yeah, we'll just be working through them one after the other and really become a full gaming company is the goal. I hear it's like a fever, man. And you've come to Kickstarter, so I guess you'll be back time and time again. Build up your fan base, keep doing the social media thing. You know, Mungie Studios, congratulations, man, and thanks for coming on the show. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is DJ Grandpa here. Welcome back to the show. And I'd like to welcome Aaron and David, co-creators of The Atom. Welcome aboard. Hey, this is Aaron. Hey, how's it going? This is uh, Dave Delcourt. Could you please tell me, how did this idea start? This is Aaron speaking. I'm a mechanical engineer by trade and on a work trip from my old employer in Belgium, I saw all these bicycles with the old bottle cap dynamos technology that came out in the 40s, right. powering their incandescent light bulbs. And looking at that, 
this was also paired at a time where I wanted to do more with my effort to directly affect the people around me. So watching these people, the students particularly, go by, I was like, there's got to be a better way. I know I can improve on this. And so with that inspiration from these past cycling engineers to create these generators, I wanted right. to bring a, a new generator to the market that was for the modern cyclists with modern technology and, and modern materials. And I was actually introduced to Dave right after I started working on it. I decided to, I was going to I was gonna do it. I'd quit my job. And uh, a good friend of mine, Obi, he uh, said, hey, you, you know, remember Dave? You met him a couple times. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember Dave. He's like, he's looking for somebody that's doing exactly what you're doing. And so I'll let Dave tell what, how he came up with his side. Went around Boston. I was always getting to and from on my bicycle. Uh, it's always been my primary form of transportation. Right. Working in and out of coffee shops and airports, and my phone's always running out of battery. And, you know, I wanted to pair the two together. And what really kind of got me over the hump of, well, how do I do this? How do I create a company or, you know, a solution that can do this was learning a bit more about the developing world kind of problems where you got, you know, a billion and a half people who don't have constant access or any access to electricity. And at the same time, you know, they're using, you know, cell phones especially, but mobile technologies as a basic source of everything from communication to mobile health to financial, you know, uh, kind of transferring money, bank accounts, that kind of thing. Okay. So why don't you tell me about your product, the SIVA Cycle Atom? In short, it's a uh, highly efficient, lightweight bicycle generator with a removable battery pack that allows you to charge USB devices. So it's an all-inclusive package that is intuitive and easy to install on your existing bicycle. Right. What we're saying is if you can... Change your tire, you can install the atom generator. As you ride, it recovers some of your kinetic energy and converts that electricity into something you can use for USB. So we provide a USB port and, you know, so your cell phone, your uh, GPS, uh, lights that are rechargeable via USB can be used. And then we also have this removable battery pack. So once you get where you're going, you'll have that power that you can take with you. Now, for the SIVA, how much energy can it store? Like, is it like an hour's worth? Can it recharge like a cell phone for a week? Technically, it's it's thirteen hundred milliamp hours. Right. What that means in in, in layman terms or in use case is you get a seventy percent charge on your iPhone five or iPhone four. Right. As you're riding, you're going to be able to charge. It's about one percent every two minutes. Now, is this product truly original, or are there like a thousand of them? littered all over the market? (laughs) That's the million dollar question. What we've done is we've taken a bunch of different technologies that have been disconnected and we were able to bring them together. So there are bicycle generators and they range from ones that are highly efficient. They range from ones that are not very efficient at all. Some of them are hard to install, more, more involved, and there's ones that are easy to install. There also are different systems and peripherals that you can connect to those generators so that you can charge a battery and or charge a phone via USB. But nothing has it where you can accurately and easily install it. It's also efficient as well as having the integrated USB and battery pack. So what we did is just kind of made it everything together and made it real simple and intuitive for somebody to use. And that's where it differentiates from everything else that's out there. And now you're on Kickstarter. How has the Kickstarter community responded? We've been blown away. Absolutely tickled pink with the response that we've seen. Maybe in our wildest dreams, we thought that this was going to happen. But we've been very pleased with how the Kickstarter community has responded. We've done our best trying to keep up with emails and comments and do everything that we can on our part. But really, it's been fantastic. Now, I see that you have a section of your program. I usually call it your good works section. So it basically talks about you doing things in emerging countries. When Aaron and I you know, met up, we both got the same inspiration. It was kind of the reason I started, though, was that concept about bridging the gap between those with power and those without power and getting these generators and the spokes of people who need it most, you know, is kind of the way we put it. We wanted to give back some and give our customers a chance to give back also. So 
for every 10 generators purchased, we're going to give one away through a partner organization. Okay. The reason we're doing one to 10, by the way, instead of one to one, you know, the generator is pretty complex. We can't really dumb it down, for instance, the way that Tom's Shoes does with their shoes. They don't give away the same shoes that you buy in the store. So we're doing it at the margins that are possible for us. What would you like to say to your backers? Thank you. <laughs> so the two main things are thank you. This has been amazing. And keep the comments and feedback coming. You know, we've had some really interesting, you know, incoming feedback about like, well, will this fit my wheelchair? That was one of my kind of most inspiring ones. Oh, yeah. Never thought about that. You know, it's something we had thought about briefly, but it wasn't our main design criteria. But with this one individual, you know, we've exchanged maybe seven or eight emails at this point uh, and getting, you know, measurements, things like that to see if even if this generation doesn't work, can the next generation. I never even thought about accessibility for the handicap. You know, that's a law, don't you? I know it's a law for like, you know, new building codes, <laughs> things like that. Oh, right? yeah. So. yeah, you're right. You're right. You might have <laughs> you might have gotten me on that technicality. OK, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought I had you. But okay. <laughs> that was a good question. OK, last question. Siva, it seems as though a word like that has to have a special meaning. Uh, yeah, well, you are an astute observer. Uh, <laughs> so this is Aaron. When we were uh, first getting together, I wanted, you know, figuring out what we we're going to call our company. You know, I always like to have names, you know, mean something. And I was thinking different other names. And I always liked the story about the Chevy Nova. So when it first came out back in the 50s, sales were great in the United States, but terrible in Central and South America. Right. And, you know, people couldn't figure it out at first until they realized that Nova in Spanish means no go. And so taking that same vein, we're like, well, we don't want a no go. We want a yes go. Yeah, yes go. Siva. Yeah. Siva. And so, hence, you know, Siva came to light. And, and, and it worked on more than just that level. You know, it's like, yeah, yes, go, you know, move forward, progressive movement. Right. It was perfect. When we, you know, as soon as they said it, we knew we had it. You guys have the marketing down. I give it to you. You got the whole sales <laughs> pitch. I like that. Aaron and David, thank you for coming on the show. I'm very impressed with your gadgety gadget the Siva Cycle Atom. I'm all into renewables. I'm always into science. I pitch it every week. It's an exciting product, a very good video presentation. And thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Up next, I went to Seattle to speak with Kickstarter alum Mo Levy, the lead singer of Seeing Blind and generous Kickstarter backers help this band complete their new album with world-renowned producer Jack Endino. You might remember him from Nirvana, L7, the whole grunge thing. Stay tuned because so Mo lets slip the name of their new album and the release date. I barely recognized you You look so Congratulations on your success on Kickstarter. Well, I'm pretty excited about it. So you're the lead singer of the band Seeing Blind. Yes, that's correct. And you're a four-piece punk band. We're not really punk. Okay. I would say we're alternative rock fusion. And I put the fusion in there because it used to be that people, people would say, you know, what is alternative anyway? You know, like, what is it? It's just a grab bag, you know, kind of answer. But it's interesting because the alternative... Then it changed to being, you know, kind of this indie thing was the alternative to the mainstream. And now indie is more mainstream. So, you know, what's the new alternative alternative? You know, I don't know what that is, but the cellist is classically trained. I'm vocally trained, you know, classically. I have a lot of blues and jazz influence. Our drummer is very influenced by jazz. I mean, it's pretty high energy. It's pretty intense. It's very eclectic. It's, it's original.
How long have you guys been together? The cellist Jessica and I have been playing together for almost 12 years. The drummer we met just a few years ago. Actually, the bass player that's on there, he actually ended up moving to Philadelphia, so we're not playing with him. Ah, oh, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's like friends. You know, some friends stick around for life, and others just, you know, they're there for a few years, you have some good times, and then move on. Now, I hear that part of the money that you were trying to raise on Kickstarter, you were trying to raise it to work with a, a star producer, Jack Edino. He's kind of a global star, and you know, I didn't realize that. You know, in Seattle, we all know him as, you know, the guy that kind of started the big G-word scene back then. We ended up working with him beforehand, and um, I actually paid for all of the studio stuff already. I just needed help finishing the project. So, yeah, we ended up working with Jack. He's pretty cool. I mean, he's just a really, I don't know, he's a, he's a real guy. He's, you know, he's not, he doesn't have the ego stuff, and that's kind of what I was looking for. Okay. Now, why don't you give me the, the lay of the land of your new album? What do you envision? What was it supposed to turn into? I wanted it to be something I was proud of, and I, I just wanted to do it my way and not have any sort of outside influences. Other than that, I, I really didn't have any expectations. I just okay. was going to go in there, and I was going to do, do it from my soul. You used to be Oh, you used to be so You didn't have any expectations, but what inspired you for this album? What was going on with your band? Members coming, members going, working with Jack. Give me a snapshot of what happened. We were there from like October through, I want to say January. Being there in the wintertime inside a studio with no windows, and you're there for 12 hours a day, it can be pretty stressful sometimes. Yeah, it can drive you crazy. It wasn't to that point, but there were definitely moments where you know, I had to go to the bathroom and just take some deep breaths <laughs> and just say, you know, it's okay. You know, the sun will come out, you know, at some point and just keep going. But going into the to the studio, both Jack and I agreed that we just wanted to make an album that was not very produced. It's something that was just a little bit more of a live feel. And I think that that, if anything, would describe what we do best because the live is what we live for. <laughs> And so we wanted to bring that into the studio with us. I always want to have a little bit of that flavor when I record because I respect that. And I think that some of the best music, some of the best art comes from just real honest honesty. And I think that when you record live, you know, like that, you kind of get that honesty. You know, Jessica and I had, like I said, we'd kind of been in and out of people coming in and out of the band and three years of just trying to find who are we, you know, what are we doing now? What do we want to do? What do we want to say? Who are we? This whole journey. So we really wanted to try to make what we had been doing for 12 years more of a focus on this album. That sounds like everything. Actually, the name of the album is called Let's Paint Our Whole Room With It. It's kind of talking about our room together, you know. Our <laughs> That's a nice I don't want to say too much about giving away some things that I want to be some surprises when it comes out. When does it come out? I just announced that we're going to be releasing it on June 15th. I wish you the best with your group, Seeing Blind. Uh, it's a great name. I like painting the room with it. Great name for the album. I wish you guys the best. I really like your music. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to welcome half of the Trans-Siberian Art Project on Kickstarter to the show. Welcome, Adele. Thank you. Could you tell me about the project? I'm a writer and Bikina is an artist, so because we both share a passion for Russia and we both studied Russian at uni, we thought that it'd be quite a good idea to actually go there together and produce an illustrated book about it. So the idea is that we really work as a team and she'll be illustrating the book and I'll be writing it. So on Kickstarter, you explain this as one writer, one artist and an epic journey on the most legendary railway of all time. Yes. Which railway is that? 
It's a Trans-Siberian railway that basically crosses the whole of Russia. Uh, so we'll be starting from um, Moscow and we're going all the way to the Far East to Vladivostok. The journey will take about a week, but we'll spend a, a whole month in Russia because we'll get off the train and go and visit different places, try and meet people, try and collect stories from the locals, um, really try and discover Russia from within. Are both of you excited about it? Yeah, really excited. I'm the one who's got to work on my Russian a bit more, a bit harder, because Bettina is already fluent. And we really want to be able to talk to people because that's the main thing. Like you, we don't want to, you know, just go there and take some pretty pictures. We really want to get to know people and get to know the country from within. Did Bettina draw the pictures that are in your Kickstarter video? Yes, she did. Those are very beautiful pictures. And I love your video, period, because... It's like one minute long, and it has opera in it. And, uh, you know, I love opera. I don't know. At least in Europe, when you hear that song, you picture Russia, you picture, like, you know, the, the great Russian buildings, and that's, uh, we thought it was quite a good song to pick. Do you know the name of that song? Uh, it's called Kalinka. Whose idea was it to just make the video no spoken words in one minute long? When we picked the song, we decided we would only play it for about a minute just so it's not boring we decided not to speak in the video just because uh, we've got friends in a lot of different countries and you know they don't all speak the same language do you guys love trains since you're doing this trip on the train yeah i'm a bit of a train nerd i mean i feel your excitement coming through <laughs> what would you like to say to your backers on kickstarter we had a bit of a slow start and we we weren't sure we were actually going to make it. It was a really, really good surprise, and we've been really touched by all the support, you know, all the people who who liked our project and who donated so we could actually, you know, make it a reality, and, and it's so exciting, so we're really, really grateful. Well, Adele, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show, and please tell your partner, Bettina, that I said hello, and good luck on your maiden voyage. I hope that you guys have a great time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Ron Ashtiani, and I'm the creative director for The Realm Project. My name's Tom Surtees, and I'm the technical director on The Realm. My name is Andrew Curtis. I'm design director on The Realm. We'd like your support to help us launch an epically beautiful and innovative point-and-click adventure on Kickstarter. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Could you tell me about your new game, your proposed game on Kickstarter called The Realm? It's set in a far distant future where nature has reclaimed the earth and uh, myth and magic are back on the rise. It uh, follows a, uh, a girl called Serena who uh, is living in a village in this world and her mother falls sick. Her mother's not able to be cured because, you know, they don't have modern technology. So uh, she goes on a quest to find a cure for her mother, which she thinks is this flower. It's in a far off city. And uh, really the game's about that. And it's also about uh, on her way, she meets uh, like this uh, stone golem called Toru. And uh, they have to kind of go on this mission together. That's really... Uh, what you do in the game. Golems are pretty mythical creatures here. That's right. We've got this kind of uh, hybrid. As I say, it's kind of, we've got a bit of tech and we've got a bit of uh, magic, we've got some elemental stuff. So the realms are a really interesting mix. Is this the first game for your production house on its own? Well, yeah, this is a joint venture between my company, Lantern, and uh, Atom Hawk Design. Between us, we've worked on, you know, lots of different games. So uh, I used to work at Sega and IDOS and uh, a company called Computer Artworks. Uh, Atom Hawk have worked with um, lots of big companies like Sony and Microsoft. Uh, so they've worked on Mortal Kombat. So the team itself is very experienced, but this is the first time that we're kind of coming together to produce this kind of product. I watched the trailer. It's beautiful. I love the way it's rendered. It looks totally magical, you know, creates a whole new world all of its own. It doesn't seem very violent. I guess I have a stereotype that most successful video games are violent. So do you feel that this game is violent enough to draw a crowd? I disagree with your assertion that uh, 
games have to be violent to be successful. I mean, there are lots of examples of very successful games that aren't actually particularly violent. I mean, you know, if you go back, you can look at Sonic and Mario or more recently games like uh, Journey. Flight and Kick Adventures, um, adventure games are kind of largely not very violent. There is menace in the realm. The world is a dangerous place and there is death, but we're not aiming at like a first person thing where you're going to sort of see heads being blown off and stuff like that. That's not what this game's about. It's more a bit more of a gentle experience, but we think it's one that will appeal to sort of both younger and older audiences. Thanks for the opportunity for the interview and for coming on The Crib and telling us all about your new Kickstarter program called The Realm. I'd like for everybody to go check it out. It's a beautifully rendered trailer. I mean, you could fall in love with it just by looking at it. So, And if you can't find it there, you can always come to our website, djgrandpa.com, and we'll provide links. Tom, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, DJ Grandpa. I'm speaking with Jonathan. He's from Vancouver, Canada. Actually, I'm not sure about all of that because in his Kickstarter view, it shows him with this bike, this trike, this DJ mobile, and he goes all around the planet, kind of like throwing house parties or block parties. So, <laughs> And I'd like you guys to check it out. It's called The Sound Travel Project, and it's on Kickstarter, and I'd like to welcome Jonathan to the show. Well, it's great getting in touch with you, and uh, I appreciate you calling me. I see that you started off in the same year as Kickstarter, 2009. That's right. Why don't you tell me a little bit about this whole movement? The idea started when I was traveling abroad, first in the Philippines, and the second half in the Netherlands, close to Amsterdam, actually, where there is a yeah. large bicycle culture that's ingrained into their history and into their you know, modern-day society as well. And uh, combining my interests and passions for design, music, DJing, it just kind of clicked in my mind, you know, why not combine the two together and spread it to the uh, other places around the world. And, you know, when I came back to North America, I had uh, realized that I needed to graduate. (laughs) This project came to mind and I pursued it. And since then, it's been a roller coaster ride as far as throwing different events and just getting people's feedback around the city and getting a feel for how people are responding to, you know, a combination of bikes and, you know, right. it's kind of mobile, portable DJ booth on wheels. I grew up in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And mm-hmm. when I was a kid, one of the most exciting but puzzling things for me was we go to a certain neighborhood and mm-hmm. it was like right before the whole mm-hmm. rap thing started. And a block party would just break out. And you'd see some guy come out of his house and he'd be on his porch and he'd just be on the one and twos going back and forth. And it was the most amazing, most exciting thing that I'd ever seen when I was a kid. Do you get that sort of response? Like, say you roll up and there's people everywhere, whatever, and they're unorganized. But then you you start doing oh, yeah. your thing and all of a sudden there's unity. I think that's one thing that I find that is uh, missing, especially in Vancouver, where it's a, it's a newer city and where it's a, a city where there's not a lot of street life. So kind of reintroducing this kind of feeling towards music and, you know, the communal and collective experience that music brings us into the streets. Right. People kind of realize that music is missing. And when I DJ and bike around the city in certain locations, it just brings so much joy and happiness. Is your lifestyle kind of like a bohemian lifestyle? I'm asking that because I'm not really seeing a way how you actually get paid for this. So I'm thinking <laughs> that you actually yeah. do this kind of like for the love or something like that. Especially when I first started it, I had just graduated university and was still in the process of looking for jobs at a time where the economy was hit pretty hard. So there was nothing really else for me to do other than pursue a personal project. It brought in some DJ gigs that were paid, but that wasn't the main reason that I was pursuing it. It was, again, for my personal passion for music and DJing and, and bikes and I felt like it could turn into something that was more of a social movement in a way. I could see you packing up the bike. You know, you got that website. 
I'm sure you're taking requests and all that. I, I think some people should reach out definitely. to you and you should, you know, they should book block parties in their regions. I definitely agree with you. At this point, three years later, you know, struggling a bit to start paying off my student loans, I realized, you know, the real world comes into play and, you know, I need to start making some money. And right. a beautiful thing about being in the creative field, a lot of us have to find a creative entrepreneurial path rather than finding, you know, a set career. And then I feel like the DJ trike could be that channel or that wave that I ride for possibly the rest of my life. And right now it's just, you know, again, using Kickstarter and, and uh, talking to as many people as I can about the project right. to help it get off its feet and, you know, have the logistics taken care of as far as the design and how that could travel to different locations and how it could be powered efficiently and uh, function as, you know, the way I need it as a DJ, as, you know, using it as an instrument. I've been rude now that I think about it. You know, I spoke to you as though you're like the DJ trike. But I'm saying, what's your handle? Mine's DJ Grandpa. I mean, every DJ has to have a cool name if it's all possible. So, I mean, I left that out. What's yours? Yeah, that's true. You know what? Um, it's been funny. Like, a lot of people have, uh, have always, ever since I've created this project, have always associated me with the DJ Trike and, you know, thinking my handle is the DJ Trike. But in fact... The DJ Trike is its own identity, its right. own, you know, persona in a way. And I'm just kind of like the puppeteer controlling it and behind the decks and the mixer. So what's your credit? I have a few different names that I go under, uh -oh. you know, a few different like AKAs. One of them being Exilla. Right. That kind of plays off my last name, Igharas. Right. That's my favorite one out of anybody that has suggested uh, <laughs> a handle for my for my DJ personality i suppose you've been doing this dj trike thing since 2009 and i saw your kickstarter video and it talks about wear and tear so what do you envision using the money for from kickstarter the money is going to be for basically redesigning the dj trike currently the tricycle frame that i'm using is imported from i believe it's from beijing china and it's not a standardized bicycle or tricycle where any parts could fit onto it. It needs to be customized to be able to, to actually install onto the bicycle frame. So a large proportion of the money will go towards building a new tricycle frame that will suit my needs as far as traveling longer distances, as well as equipping the tricycle with an electric assist. And that will allow me to travel further distances as well as through different trains. The electric assist also will help me power my DJ equipment. So I'm looking at a different uh, concept for designing the entire tricycle so that it's able to ship overseas if needed to, or it could be towed behind a truck or a car or a van. I'm thinking about the modular aspect of it, to be able to disassemble it and uh, flat pack it if need be. It's pretty exciting to be redesigning it in a new way. Jonathan, this project is different. See, it's weird but it's cool. And <laughs> I like that you just took an idea, man, and, and, and made it into something of your own. I mean, I always respect people who can do that sort of thing, take nothing and turn it into something. So it's a community sort of thing. And Kickstarter is totally a community-based place. Jonathan, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, DJ Grandpa. I appreciate you calling. DJ Grandpa loves science, and DJ Grandpa loves the ocean. And that's why I totally fell for Coral Box, a Kickstarter project about a team of coral reef repairing robots. Check out my interview with David Lane, one of the engineers from the Coral Bots team. Hi, I'm Dr. Leanne Henry, and I'm one of the project partners on Coral Bots. Now, unfortunately, coral reefs have suffered a lot of damage due mostly to our activities. Okay, so David, like welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Could you tell me about coral bots? Because I'm very excited. Okay. This group of engineers and scientists, computer scientists, we're getting together with a group of marine biologists who work in the same university. 
who have a big interest in coral and the repair of coral reefs. And the whole coral bot idea really came around by accident. We were in a meeting somewhere, somebody had a quick conversation, and it kind of grew from that. And what we recognized was that we had most of the moving parts that you need to build robots that can repair coral reefs. So instead of what people are doing at the moment, which is using divers, which takes weeks and months to repair a dying or dead coral reef, we reckon that with using robots working on their own, we can do it in days to weeks. Now, how would a robot go about repairing a coral reef? We have a, a robot that goes in and flies around the reef and brings back lots of video data that tells us what sort of condition the reef is in. And actually what we do is we build a thing called a video mosaic. It's like a big, big video picture where you can see all the reef as if the water was taken out. Wow. And so we have a look at that. And then from that you can go, okay, here are the areas where the reef needs to be repaired. And it's the marine biologists that make those decisions, right? Right. But then we put a different fleet of robots in and they carry with them live coral and their job is to fly to different places on the reef and to replace the dying coral with the live coral. Do you guys grow this coral? Yeah, some of the researchers are involved in doing that or sometimes what you can do is transplant it from somewhere else where the reef is... Uh, uh, it's, it's great. So you can kind of grow it in a farm kind of area and then... Uh, and then move it over. But that's not really my thing. You have to ask the the marine biologist those questions. (laughs) I'm an engineer. engineer. Can I ask you (laughs) one question that maybe you would have found out by now that I'm not quite sure of? Right. Okay. Is a coral reef, is it a living organism? Because I'm not quite sure. Yeah, but the living organism is the small polyp. It's the small little animal that lives in the structure, the coral structure. And it's the polyp that builds the reef, that builds that kind of calcium-based structure. You may be an engineer, but see, you've already clarified one thing for me. Okay. You can get a promotion for that. Oh, hurrah. Yeah. (laughs) What stage of development is this project in? So a lot of the technology of how to build a robot, how to navigate a robot, how to sense the coral reef, that kind of stuff, we've done that for different applications lots of times in the past but what we haven't done is put it together in a way that applies to the coral reef application right so what we want to do with the kickstarter resources is do a proof of concept demonstration where we'll have a couple of bots and we'll show in principle the way that it'll work are we talking about artificial intelligence for these robots what the robots have to do is work together in order to work out where to put the coral on on the reef. And the way we're going about doing that is using an artificial intelligence technology called swarming. In essence, what it does is it tries to work in the same way that bees work in a hive or termites in a mound or ants. Lots of animals, each one relatively simple in its own intelligence, but collectively working quite smart together. Okay, I'm going to make the mistake that I always make, and I'm going to say, this sounds like cutting-edge technology. And then you're going to say, no, no, no. This has been around for about 40 or 60 years, but it's just been now that, you know, because of the drop in computer price. Am, am I correct about yeah. this now? I think the the idea of swarming has been around for a while. <laughs> See, you the, got <laughs> What's making it possible, you're right, actually, is that we can package the computing into smaller form factors, into smaller boxes, right. you know, that you can put it onto vehicles. But also, it's not just the computing, it's also sensing, the sensors that you oh. use to figure out, you know, cameras are much smaller now, and you can put them in, in housings to put them in the water. So everything gets smaller and smaller. Okay, you guys are all well-intentioned, but whenever we introduce something foreign, you know, foreign body, foreign matter into an ecosystem... Have you guys put much thought into actually polluting the ecosystem that you're trying to save? I mean, with these, I I guess I'm saying with these machines, I don't know what sort of emissions they give off or anything like that, how they're fueled, powered. um. That's a great question. So the bots are powered by electricity. So they're electric motors and batteries and stuff. So there's nothing in them 
that's likely to cause damage to the reef. In fact, if you compare a coral bot to a diver, you know, divers are more likely to cause pollution than coral bots are. If you think about some of the things that people do in their wetsuits when they're diving, if you know what I mean. I got you. This is a family show. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it's a family thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This is in my family. Okay, okay. Um, Uh, I understand. I understand. So I think from the pollution point of view, it's okay. Some people say, well, what happens if the robot hits the reef by accident? Won't that damage the reef? And we say, well, there's a lower risk of the robot doing damage to the reef than there is from a diver because the sort of forces that the robot can exert are much smaller. A diver who kicks the reef with their fin by mistake can cause a lot more damage. So we feel comfortable that actually the, the impact will be less rather than more. Is this the only research project of its kind? We're not aware of anybody trying to do this to the extent that we are. There are, there are people using robots to survey coral reefs. Right. But to actually do the repair, it's unique. For anyone interested, go to Kickstarter and type in Coral Bots, and it'll pull up their page, and you can check out their rewards and contribute to the project. The Earth is two-thirds water, so this project affects us all, and I don't believe I'm a bleeding heart or anything like that. I just think science is cool. David, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Before I go, I want to encourage all our listeners to like our Facebook page. Search words DJ Grandpa's Crib or follow the link from our website. And I know you're going to like this. We have some exciting giveaways to announce as soon as we reach 100 Facebook likes. I'd like to thank all our guests this week and I'd also like to thank our listeners. We couldn't do it without you guys. A special thanks goes out to Trevor Williams for contributing the theme song to DJ Grandpa's Crib. I'd also like to thank Theron Kennedy, our director of marketing. Until next week, so say we all. The homepage for DJ Grandpa's Crib is djgrandpa.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, DJ Grandpa's Crib, all one word. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Von Rupert. The executive producer of this and all Bedrock Communications podcasts is A.F. Rufus. Thank you.